So as a way to uh, move us into the Lenten season, or the Lenten lands, uh, is a, a way I like to say it or think about it, this wilderness season, uh, the lectionary that we oftentimes follow here at Mosaic, that's the, this calendar that the church has used for a couple thousands of years that uh, shapes and forms the seasons that the church finds themselves, the ideas that they're kind of centering themselves on. And the Sunday before Lent is called Transfiguration Sunday. And it's the last Sunday before this season. And there's a lot of connections here uh, that are really beautiful. And so we're going to read that passage from Matthew. If you don't mind, and if you're able to, stand with me as we read the text this morning as a way to center and attune our hearts and our minds to the Lord and what he would have to say to us through his text. Our passage comes from Matthew 17. It's verses 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. You've heard Kyle and I say this before, and any preacher, lots of preachers say these things, uh, and Bible scholars or teachers, and uh, it bears repeating and reminding that when really odd and random sentences or things that seem kind of arbitrary start a pericope or a section of scripture, a passage, uh, is what that word means, this kind of story, that it means something, that they don't Oh, those there for like no reason or whatever. It kind of seems like a throwaway line to us, but to them. And our passage this morning starts with this idea that after six days, and that means after six days from the last time we had heard from Jesus and the disciples, so just to kind of put us in the narrative, what has happened here is that Jesus in chapter 15 and the narrative that Matthew is constructing for us and following along with Jesus and the disciples is that Jesus has just fed the 4,000 plus the women and the children that were there eating as he was teaching and doing his thing. And they'd had no food or whatever it was. And they're like, Jesus, we need more food. And he's like, go find it. You do it. They, miracle happens. Things are crazy. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the people that are the rulers, the, the, the holders, the gatekeepers of doctrine and of right living for the Israelite people, these ones that have come and have kind of established themselves as the ones that will say, you're in or you're out, this is the way to do it, or this is not the way to do it. They come to Jesus because they've heard of what he's doing. 
Somebody starts feeding thousands of people in the desert miraculously, and uh, even without Twitter, word spreads. Even without things going viral on the internet, people will find out if the Lord starts doing something in the midst of humanity, okay? And so they come out to him and they say, listen, we've heard what you're doing. And I think in this moment, uh, we oftentimes paint them as uh, maybe being a little bit critical or harsh. We oftentimes see them uh, as the bad guys, the villains, all of these things. And I think we would do well to remember that they're us in a lot of ways. They're the religious. They're the ones that have been doing this their whole lives. And they are eagerly and expectantly longing to see the Messiah come. And they hear word about somebody feeding a whole bunch of people miraculously in the desert or in the wilderness, and their minds go, wait a minute, this sounds a lot like Exodus. Sounds like the the things that we know, the stories we've told, the things that are deeply ingrained into our bones and our blood, okay? Like this is in their DNA, and they're going, this might be it. And so they come, and they say, will you show us a sign? Here's the thing. We oftentimes want to do the same thing. We want signs. We want assurance. We want confidence. We want to know that it is. And we can kind of be like, oh my gosh, how did you not just know it was Jesus? Like, why would you not just give yourself to him? Because, right? Like, they, they wanted to know. They were, long, they were excited. They were expecting this to come. They had given their whole lives to this moment. And they wanted to know, is this it? And Jesus does the thing that Jesus does. And he's like, mm, you know, I'm not going to give you a sign. Except the sign of Jonah. And they're confused. What is he talking about? And then the blessed disciples that just, you know, I just love them so much. They start talking to Jesus, and Jesus is like, now listen, be careful. Don't let the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees, don't let it mess with you. And they're like, dang it, he's talking about bread because we didn't bring bread with us. And Jesus is like, guys, it doesn't have anything to do with bread. Talking about their teaching, their doctrine, what they're expecting. So what Jesus does in this moment is he's saying, listen, there's this new thing happening. And there will be a new doctrine. There will be a new way of knowing truth. There will be a new understanding of what is right and what is good. It doesn't have anything to do with bread and your physical like, kind of world around you. He's cueing them in on something. that This kingdom that is coming, it's different. It has a different economy. It has a different ethic. It has a different basis of truth. And it is not in this material world in the way that you think it will, but it is not separate from the material world. He's letting them know that this kingdom is not going to be about the way that we understand kingdoms and power on earth, but the doctrine and the truth, the theology that is going to undergird this kingdom is totally and wholly different than what they were looking for and expecting. And so the disciples are like, okay, 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 fine, we get it. And they're going, and then it's six days later from that And in that moment, there's this one other part that happens. is Jesus is explaining this kingdom. As he's explaining the way it's going to be different. He's talking about how nothing's going to be the same. And he says, what's going to be different and what is going to look totally out of the ordinary from the, what you're expecting and what you're looking for is that this kingdom, the power, the grandeur, the splendor of it, will not be in kingdoms of, you know, castles and and all of this, like, wealth and riches, but it'll actually be in suffering. And the Messiah will have to go die. 
And Peter, who is always eager to, like, you know, do the right thing. In sports, they talk about there's good misses and bad misses. And in basketball, like, you know, you can miss a shot and there's good misses and there's bad misses. There's good hits and there's bad hits. This is, Peter's, is a good miss, but it's a miss nonetheless. He's eager and he says, Lord, no, I won't let it happen. We'll take him down. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. No, 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 you don't understand. My suffering is necessary. And in time, you'll get it. You'll see it and you'll be a part of it. Six days later, that same guy that Jesus just rebuked and called Satan, along with two more, the sons of thunder, I think I might have them. Uh, I'm not thunder, but I think I have the, the children that embody what it would mean to be the sons of thunder, because, you know, this, wherever they go, there's a, a storm and chaos. James and John, they come. And they go up, and Jesus, six days later, from that moment where Peter has just tried to like, take over, so eager, just like we are, to say, okay, okay, we totally missed it, but now we got it, and now let's do it our way. Instead of waiting, having the patience, having the, the kind of fortitude and the wisdom to go, okay, okay, Jesus, you're up to something. Let, let's see what you want to do here. Let's let you play it out. Let's let you kind of instruct us and guide us and lead us. And Peter's like, action. Now, got to do something. Six days later. Six days is an important uh, time sequence for the Hebrew people because six days was how long they thought it took to sanctify something to make it holy. They get this, this idea from creation. Creation was made in six days, and on the seventh, God rested. Six days is how long it took when Moses went up Mount Sinai, and he sat in the cloud and then God finally spoke. And so this idea that waiting for six days is something, there's a sanctifying process to it. There's a holiness to it. There's this thing that's going, you are about to experience something. And the Hebrew readers and listeners of this would have understood what this six, when they say, and then in six days, oh, this is, this is a holy moment. What is about to transpire? And that's what Matthew, as the author of this gospel, wants us to see. He wants us to see that his Jesus is about to do something that is transcendent, that is moving them from the worldly and the earthly and into something that is supposed to be sanctified and good and right. But you also should begin to see other parallels here. You are right if you are reading this, dear reader, to understand that this has got Mount Sinai and Moses written all over it beyond just the six days. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he takes three with them. Up at six up there, and then the Lord comes to Moses in a cloud, and he speaks audibly. When Moses comes down, he's shining bright like light. The Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew wants us to see there's something happening here. Jesus and Moses have some overlap. There's something new being created. And this is all hearkening back to creation. We talked summer when we went through Exodus of how much of this was creation narrative, was garden narrative, was this idea that Jesus is now being recreated and Moses was doing something with the people of God then that was recreating what God had always intended. The kingdom is coming to earth as it was always meant to be. Matthew wants his readers to get this and so they go up in this mountain and up is always towards holiness. They didn't think heaven existed somewhere way out there. Heaven was just always right above you. So the higher you went in their minds, the holier it was. 
we now have some misconceptions of where heaven is because we can now see to the end of you know the galaxies and, and further on. So just heaven kept getting further and further away as science did its thing. But it was never meant to be a distance thing. It was just always meant to be this thing. There was this overlap. And what we were after was the way that these two could merge and that there would be a traffic between the two. God longed for there to be a connection, a merger, so that they would be together. Never that they'd be off. Heaven's kind of everywhere. It's all around us. It's a fourth dimension in some sense. Like it is this thing. It's, it's in the future. It's in the past. It's in the now. It's in the way, way future. You know, like it's, all, it's this whatever. And so they go up mountains to experience this, to get closer. It's this holiness movement. And so we're seeing that this is the thing that's supposed to be happening. They're going up, which means they're going closer to where God is. And holiness begins to break in. And this matters. Because there's something here that begins to take place as Jesus is just being, Matthew's showing Jesus as feeding people in the wilderness. He's now showing Jesus as taking these people up to be near to God, to allow this to, to something to transpire. So just a side note right here in these moments, it is a good reminder that it's good to have a small group of friends that you can do intimate and holy things with, right? Not everything is meant to be for everyone all the time. So it's nice to have this small group you can pray with and commune with. Can't do everything in huge groups all the time. So he takes them up. It's not an exclusivity of Jesus. It's a practicality. It's just the way things have to be sometimes. And he's getting them to understand doctrine is shifting. Truth and our understanding of what it is is shifting. You're seeing something that's being revealed. And he's taking them up and he's going to show them the basis of that. Now, here's the thing. When they get up there, who appears? Elijah and Moses. Moses being the law. Elijah being a prophet. At this point in time, the basis and the truth of doctrine, like the source of doctrine for the Israelite people, was what? The prophets and the law. This is what they would have understood to be where the source of authority comes from. And so they go up on this mountain, and not for Jesus, not for God, but for the disciples that are with him, these good Jewish people, they ascend the mountain and in this moment of transfiguration, where Jesus is turned into something that is actually what he's always meant to be, who he really is is kind of revealed. And in that moment, Moses and Elijah appear. And Matthew is wanting his people to hear and to see this change in doctrine, this source of truth is shifting it is not what the Sadducees and the Pharisees have told you that it is going to be. It is not the people that hold the power. It is not the narratives that you've grown up thinking. But at the center of this doctrine and this truth, the center of this theology is Jesus Christ. And he is the one that we're supposed to turn and to look and to see that will be the source of this movement, the center of this kingdom. Not just the Messiah. Not just the one that is going to come and to overthrow and to conquer. Not just this human king that is going to reign in some way, which is what they thought and what they wanted and what they longed for. But this person standing in front of them is something entirely more than they could have ever dreamt of or imagined. He himself is the truth. 
He himself is the one in which all of this is predicated on, not just because of his actions, but because of his being. Who he is is at the center of this thing and of the kingdom. And so they go up high on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is transfigured there in front of him, in front of them. And there's this really cool thing that happens here. This is, you guys know me, I'll always admit it, like my Greek and my Hebrew is terrible considering I had eight semesters worth with the two combined. Like I can't even read your tattoos. Like that's, that's bad, okay? There's like five words that you would maybe have tattooed on you in Greek and Hebrew. And I'm like, oh, faith? I don't know, love? Why not? It's got to be one of them. But sometimes it really matters. It's good to, to use it well. And this is what's cool in these little moments. And this is why you read commentaries to understand scripture like this. In this little section, there's three things that we see that it's talking about Jesus shining and being bright and that he was shining like the sun and all of this. And in Greek, all three of the root words come from the same root. It's different variations and it gets translated differently. But what it is saying is that not shining like the sun, but he was lamped. He was emitting light. He was lamping like the sun. Not glamping, you know, but lamping. He was, he shone and he was shining. And all of this is Matthew trying to get you to see that this truth, this person is not simply someone to be followed that has had an encounter with the Lord, but this person, what is the thing about the sun? What do we know? Like the, the revolutionary shift and the scientific like revolution is not that the sun like just was this bright light, but it's like it's the source of its own light. The moon reflects light. But the sun, the sun is the source by which we see all things. Ancient Greek philosophy would attest to this. My Samford students, you should know this well with Plato in the cave. I teach it, you know, like you know it. The sun is the source by which you see everything. And Matthew is saying, this is who Jesus is. He's not just a bright light to follow, but he is the source of it. He is the light itself. And Matthew wants us to see this by repeating these three words of like, it, it's the action of who he is. Now, Peter, days before this, eager to just like, you know, Jesus, let's just fight people with swords. Like, I won't let it happen. And he gets rebuked. Those of you that are like very stoic, you wait, you choose your words wisely, you can't relate with Peter in this moment. Where are my people that consistently leave parties thinking like, I talked way too much? Like, where are the people that are like, why do I, like, like I just, I always take the bait. Like, I, and then you leave and you're like, gosh dang it, why, like, why do I do this? Why do I get so worked up? It doesn't matter at the end of the day if somebody doesn't think LeBron's the greatest player of all time, but like I got to get heated about it. Like I can't not. This is Peter. I relate on a spiritual and like physical level with Peter here. I can only imagine for six days, Peter has been like, just don't talk, dude. Just don't talk. Like just let it just because I've had these conversations with myself. I walk into moments and I'm like, just let everybody else talk. Like don't, don't say anything. Like just you stop. You don't have to say it. You don't have to say that thing that comes to your mind. Stop, stop, stop. And Peter, he looks and he's like, Jesus, let's build three tents right here. And Jesus is like, like, no, right? Like poor Peter, he, he wanted so badly. He wants to do this thing. He sees these people come and they're on the mountain and he says to them immediately, Jesus, it is good that we are here. 
And I can just only imagine that Jesus is like, would you just let me get to the point, you know? Like, there's, there's something happening here. My guy, like, me and the Father, we'd worked this out, you know? Like, there's, we're going somewhere. Just wait. He wants to build a tent. He wants to build a booth, a shelter, a tabernacle. He wants to worship in this moment. And this is true of all of us, even if you're not Peter that wants to just, you know, jump into the front of the line and say the first thing that comes to your mind. We experience these moments just as the Israelites had. They'd experienced something. They knew something of God to be true and good and right, and they wanted to camp there. They wanted to, this is what it's supposed to be, and we're going to stay. Everything's going to be exactly the way that we think it should be. And they're immediately going to start to define and lay out, this is where this goes, and this is where this goes. And God is good and gracious to us, and he uses those moments. And he still ministers to us, even though that's our inclination. But this is a giant warning towards us, that when there are these moments of holiness and manifestation, that we would be good to be reminded that the Lord is trying to do something there. And instead of trying to build something around it, to just say, Lord, what would you have for us here? Our human inclination and whatever it is, wherever the Lord speaks, like our human inclination is to be like, well, this is the way the Lord moves. This is what he wants to do. And I think what scripture is trying to scream at us is that the Lord is wild and on the move and unpredictable and that we can't contain him in our tiny little tents and shelters. He can't be left there. We can't just put him in these boxes and say, that's where the Lord is. And oftentimes we don't do, we hear people say that and I think, well, I would never do that. Why would I do that? Like, obviously my heart is good and, and, and like I intend to do something really good. So did Peter. His heart was in a good space. Like this was, this would have been good and right to do in this moment. And in our own ways, we begin to say, this is where the Lord is supposed to be. And we long to go back to, obviously, there are the people that we can, you know, throw stones at and be like, well, yeah, you do that so that you're free to go do whatever you want. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about this deep desire to return back to where you know the Lord is meant to be and to allow worship and holiness to invade and to overwhelm. And our desire is to build something around it when the Lord moves to make something out of it when he shows up. Our desire, our longing is to begin to put our own narrative and story around it and for us to start to define it. And Jesus is saying in this moment, in the spirit that comes in the cloud and overwhelms, and this is again, I don't know Greek this well, but uh, commentators tell me this, that you should have laughed at the next verse. There would have been intentionally there this humor that while Peter is, talk while Peter is still talking, the next verse says, the cloud interrupts him. It's like, you already saw him mess up once. He can't even go six days, you know, and mess up again. And he does it right away. And it's just like that moment, we've seen this. Funny teachers do this in this moment. The kid that always talks, and finally they just like, and the whole class kind of chuckles, you know. It's like, dude, I can't stop talking, right? That was always me. So, the, like, there's this moment, you should see it, that it, the spirit interrupts. And it's like, Peter, just, just listen. And this is what I want you to hear. And this is what the readers of Matthew 17 should hear. That with Peter standing there, Peter will become what? The rock, the representation of the church. James and John are going to be a representation of the New Testament and the scriptures to come. Elijah and Moses are there, the prophets and the law. And all these people are here. And the spirit speaks boldly and loudly. 
in a similar way that we see in the baptism narratives. But what is unique about the transfiguration narrative is that this line is added that says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Let Jesus be what we, I said that really like Southern Baptist, like pastor, Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Like, let him move us. Like, he is the source of truth. He is the light. And the prophets and the law and the church and tradition and history and the way that those have gone before us are good and right and valuable, and we should give credence to those things. He is not rejecting any of that. They will hold on to the prophets and the law very tightly. But at the center of it, of our worship, of our devotion, of our understanding of all that is good and right in the world should be at the very heart. It is Jesus. The gospel is that, that Jesus has come. And he is the source of it all, and we should give our lives to him. And on this mountaintop, the centrality and the root of authority and power of this new way of being and existing in this new way of economics and this new kingdom that is being established, the way that heaven will invade earth is Jesus. At the center, at the heart, the thing itself that emits the light, that emits like all that is to be seen, the thing by which we will understand and know everything else is Jesus. It's why these other things are good, because we understand and know them, because Jesus is reflected in them. Jesus is sourced in them, right? Or they source Jesus into them. Like, like they're still good. But it has to be Jesus. And Matthew is telling us this new way of being and existing that you are being invited into. It has to be Jesus. Because it's going to be difficult. Because here's the thing that happens. Jesus, this moment, spirit falls, cloud comes, voice speaks. And just like Mia talked about in her sermon, like sometimes when God comes close, it's not always fun. It's actually kind of scary most of the time. For those of you that oftentimes wish uh, that you could just have the Lord speak to you out of thin air and do the writing on the wall, you don't know what you want. Oftentimes, not oftentimes, all of the time in Scripture, when the Spirit or something has to interrupt and you have to have your uh, Emmaus road, or not your Emmaus road, your Paul mama, it is because you're often left field. Here's left field, right field. You have this way in which the Lord's going to show up because he has to correct you. Someone that's had those moments, it's not fun to realize that so much of your life has ran so far off course. Most of the time, theophanies in scripture are not cute, fuzzy, warm, rainbow, therapeutic, kumbaya moments. The sky is rendered apart. Mountains tremble and the earth quakes when the spirit shows up. But our tendency is to oftentimes make it to be this like cute little quaint moment. So the disciples rightfully fall on their faces and are like, this is terrifying. But Jesus does this beautiful thing. Jesus being full of grace and mercy comes near to them and he says, stand up. It's okay. Because Jesus is God incarnate the God that we should fall and tremble before, the God that is terrifying, too much to handle, said, you know what I'll do? I'll do this. I'll put clothes on. I'll clothe my 
that they don't see me in all my, you know, fool that they can't handle. But I'll clothe myself. I'll come down near to them so that they can then be ushered into that presence. And joy. He says, I'll do that. I'll come near to them and I will pick them up. And in these worship through understanding of scripture and the sacraments and the understanding of the grace and the kindness that the Lord wants to offer to us, we understand that now we too can be bold as Jesus taught us to pray. We can be bold to enter into that presence. We can be bold to receive the gifts of God that the creator longs for us to have because Jesus has made a way for us to do so. And this is why he looks at Peter and he looks at James and he looks at John as they're walking back down the mountain in the last verse for our passage today. He says, do not tell others about this. He's not trying to be mysterious. He's not trying to be tricky. He's not trying to create a clever marketing campaign. I'll posit before you today that I think what he is doing is he is saying, you have just had one of the most amazing experiences that any human being can ever fathom or imagine, and your brain is not capable of understanding what happened yet. And you need to sit on it. And you need to cherish it and you need to value it, and you need to hold on to it tightly and let it overwhelm you and change you from the inside out because things are going to happen very soon, right around the corner, and you'll understand all that just took place. I think ultimately he's talking about the, the, the thing that's going to happen the most is the cross and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then that is going to give them a lens by which they understand all that just took place. He's, saying, he's not saying sit on it because he doesn't want the word to get out. He's saying sit on it because your teeny little minds can't fathom what, just, what you just saw. And I think that's so true for so many of us. We experience something. We have this moment and we rush. We go past and we start adding what we think needs to be. We start saying, we need to go do this now, like we got calls to action, all of these things, instead of sitting and letting the Lord unfold before us what he would intend for us to experience. So this is what happens. They're on the mountain. They come down. The source of authority and power is in Jesus. They come down. They have some questions. I mean, they just saw Elijah, and so I think it would be right that the disciples, kind of chapter 16 is going to end, and they're going to be like, hey, Jesus, by the way, this whole Elijah thing, why does everybody say Elijah's got to come before the Messiah? And he's going to say something cryptic like he does, and they're going to realize it was John the Baptist, and they're one step closer to getting it. They're putting it together. This is who Jesus is. And so they have this idea that the power is at hand, who the source is, all of this, and then he's going to do this third thing that is going to frustrate them, but they're going to start to get it. And he's going to show them that the way to this life, the experience of this power, is not through grandeur and it is not through kumbaya, but it is through sacrifice and suffering. And he's going to show to them that the way to live this, the source of this, where the church should find and plant its flag, is in this living this out amongst people. Because what you see is they come down this mountain, they've had this great high top experience, and immediately Jesus is bombarded with people people that no one else wants to touch or talk to. And instead of rejecting them and saying, I'm the source of all power, you guys just saw how holy and divine I am. These wretched and people that are considered to be outsiders and far off, these people that aren't supposed to even be able to come in and worship, these are the people that immediately from this moment Jesus goes and he has conversation with and he touches and he is near to. And Matthew wants us to see that this is the result of miraculous encounters with Jesus. 
theology is profoundly revealed in mountaintop moments, and we should seek and we should long for them. And it will cause us to understand and reorganize all that we know to be true in the world. But it is not ever meant to be left on the mountaintop. The majority of our life is meant to be lived down at the bottom, serving, getting dirty, getting our feet and our hands in the earth, doing this other thing. And then the next three chapters after that, 17, or we were in 17, 18, 19, 20, are going to be Jesus's, uh, one of the most uninterrupted sections of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, where he lays out the ethics of the church, the family, and of work life. Because his point is, is once you grab a hold of me and you understand who I am, your worship, your family, and your relationships, and your work, and what you do in society and culture should all look radically different. Because there's a new way of being and existing in the kingdom of God. And as you touch the divine, and as you experience it, you know this is to be true. And he wants them to see that theology is only as good as it is lived. And he wants them to live it as he lived it. He wants them to experience it and to know it to be true so that others might see Jesus. That's our call. That's who we're meant to be. And I think oftentimes what you see in this, in this little 15 through 20 section of Matthew, on the beginning and at the end, you have doctrine, ethics. You have right thinking, truth, knowledge, understanding, and you have right way of existing and living. And we want to pull into either camp. We want to live in doctrine or we want to live in ethics. And the transfiguration pulls us into the middle and says, no, 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 your doctrine and your ethics should flow and be centered on this moment of who Jesus is, because he is both. And he holds both together. And they are not at odds. They are uniquely and beautifully woven together. And they should influence one another because that's who Jesus was. Because he came to reveal both the truth and the way to the truth. He is the light. He's the way. And he's calling us to live this way. And so in many ways then, Transfiguration Sunday, what it's inviting us into is this wilderness period that Lent is. This is why this Sunday sets up right before Lent. Jesus is the truth. He is holy. He is good. He is right. He is the source of all knowledge and understanding. And so much of your life, dear Christian, is lived in the wilderness the way Jesus's was. Much of your life is called onto the long obedience in the same direction. Much of your life is going to be into sacrifice and into dying to yourself, into serving others, even though you know these holy moments in other places. I do want to say this, though. I think in this room, if I were to guess, the majority of us would probably lean more towards wanting to get the way of living right. We probably are more inclined to understanding ethics and, hey, Christianity, it's not four walls. It's not here. It's out there. And we're good, and that is Jesus, that is Jesus. Let Transfiguration Sunday be an invitation and a reminder that there are, though, moments where you are supposed to be brought up into this transcendent holy moment. That moment is not bad. That moment is not meant to be rejected. That moment is not meant to be defined or uh, have a value judgment placed upon it. 
that moment is meant to be cherished and experienced. And as you are called up into miraculous and overwhelming outpouring of the Spirit, which I believe God longs to dump on us, not trickle out. I think he wants to dump it on us. He wants the Spirit to overwhelm us. We should sit in those moments and be grateful to us. But we always do it, remembering that that's not where we stop. It's meant to go out. And if at this point, if you're wondering and you're up to date on the news and Christianity and you're thinking, is he talking about the things that are going on around college campuses? Why, yes, yes, I am. Things that are happening in Asbury and Samford, things that are happening in Cedarville and Lee University, these college students that are having these moments, we don't have to define it all, guys. We don't have to name it. We don't have to say it's this or it's that or to say, like, oh, that's good, that's bad. We don't have to say, well, if it was really a revival, you're right. If it was, if it's really a revival, if it's really God moving, then you'll see the fruit. The of these moments, we gather to worship here. We know that this is not where God, like, intends for us to spend our whole time. But please let us lay down the cynicism and the frustrations, and all of these things, and the pseudo-intellectualism, the posturing of we're better than other people to think, well, yeah, but I mean, like, worship, right? Like, people. Come eager and expectant to encounter the Lord. The Holy Spirit overwhelm you. It is good and right, and it will change you, and I think that God longs for you to experience these moments. And where they happen, let them happen. Don't get in the way. And when they end, they end and you move into the action that God would intend for you to walk into. It is both. Well, it's all three. It's doctrine as well. And so I hope that we could be a church that would eagerly seek to see moments like mountaintop experiences that we would long for them and that when we have them and experience them that we would just sit and let the Lord overwhelm us because he wants to. And then as the calendar tells us, he's going to send us into six weeks of the wilderness. So enjoy it while you can, right? Have fun while you can. And know that most of your life is going to be spent serving and sacrificing. But do not deny the pleasure and the delight that God longs for you to experience when it comes. Don't hold it at bay because you're cynical and you're frustrated and you have something to prove. Delight in the Lord. Be overwhelmed by it and trust that the experiences of your own heart and of those around you will bear themselves out. Kyle said this this week. Uh, when somebody asked him this question and I was nearby. And he said, it's true of the prophets and I think it's true of us in our own lives. That which is a true prophet, what he prophesies comes true and reveals to us the Lord. And that which isn't, doesn't. And that's neither our uh, judgment call or our cross to bear. That's theirs. That's why the New Testament is going to say, those of you that choose to stand up and speak and to lead and to do these things, it's heavy is your burden. Because the onus is on you. And so I think that we can long for these moments. And when we experience something, we don't have to spend the whole time in our right brain saying, did I just make all this up? Who knows? Maybe you did. But also, who knows, maybe the Lord is speaking to you and doing something to you in your emotion and in that moment. Maybe it's a little bit of both because we're a little bit of both. And so as you come to the table today and the band comes up, and we go to sing our last two songs and to worship. I invite you to come to the table and to come to the elements knowing that this, 
the bread and the blood poured out and broken for you is what allows you to come boldly, but not boldly as in arrogantly or foolishly, although I think that the Lord just is, is, just is okay with that, to be honest, you know, as long as you're coming in some sense. But he's inviting you to come and to experience him and to stand in that very presence. To come and to let it overwhelm you and to shake you at your core and to also stand up and to see that the only thing in front of you is Jesus. To be invited to stand up and to not just in this worship moment, but to know that this resurrection moment is also for you. That in Jesus' resurrection, that he's inviting you to stand up and to walk into new life. Each and every Sunday, we come back to this. You are given new life, new hope, new way of being and existing. And so come boldly, come eagerly, come earnestly to the table and receive the free gift and grace of Jesus Christ. The body broken and the blood poured out in order that you can stand before that presence of God and experience the transcendence and the holiness that he would long for you to experience and let it overwhelm you. And church, let it move us into action. Let us be known by all. Let us be known by an experience of God that is rooted in and is understood by the true and right way of seeing in Jesus Christ and the true and right way of living that is the way of Jesus Christ. Let us center ourselves, as we do every Sunday again and again, directly on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and let him move us to be what only we can be in and through him. So as the band plays, come, take a piece of the bread, the cup, go back to your seats, hold the elements. I'll come back and I'll lead us in the taking, as is our custom. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.